That's an amazing story of uh, God's power, his protection, his grace, but also uh, the mercy that is uh, very real um, when we submit our lives to Christ. Um, Jackie asked me to share this as a conclusion to her story. Uh, Three years before, before that night, the night of the beating, Jackie had made a commitment to the Lord, but she was not living fully uh, with him. The night of the beating, she put her trust back in the Lord, committed every compartment, committed, committed every part of her life to him for eternity. And it was God that healed her in one month when the doctor said she needed six months to a year to be healed. His amazing power, but then it was also God's grace, God's mercy that allowed her to forgive the man who attacked her violently. And all you can say after that is, God is good. God is good. God is good. The question before us this morning is, how does a heart become merciful? And we're going to look at the Beatitudes back in Matthew chapter 5. And we're just going to go ahead and read the whole list because they all fit together. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because your reward, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we've looked at these Beatitudes the last couple of weeks with Kevin, we saw that the first three Beatitudes, well, the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 5, describe the emptiness of the blessed person. Then in verse 3, the poverty stricken in spirit. Verse 4, the grieving over the sin and the misery of the condition, the present condition, verse 5, accepting the hardships, accusations of a life and meekness without any defensiveness. The condition of the blessed emptiness is followed in verse 6 by the hunger and thirst for fullness and righteousness. Then we come to three descriptive phrases after this, these beatitudes. Righteousness abounds in the heart of the hungry, what that looks like. Mercy in verse 7. Verse 8, purity in verse 9 peacemaking. So the answer to our question, how does a heart become merciful? I think first it's felt in the spiritual bankruptcy. Comes out of grief over the sin that we all commit. And it's learned to wait meekly in the timing of the Lord, to cry out in hunger for the work of his mercy to satisfy within us a righteous need. Here's something interesting about this beatitude. The mercy that God blesses, it itself is the blessing. It grows up like fruit out of a broken heart and a meek spirit and a soul that hungers and thirsts for God to be merciful. Mercy comes from mercy. Our mercy to each other comes from God's mercy to us. And I think as we look at this text, if you are going to be a merciful person, you have to come before the cross as a broken person. You get the power to show 
mercy from the real feeling in your heart that everything you are or everything that you have, you don't, none of it is owing except to sheer divine mercy. You don't deserve it. Therefore, if you want to become a merciful person, it is imperative to cultivate a new view of God and ourselves that helps us to say in our heart every joy, every blessing, even every distress is owing to the free and undeserved mercy of God. There's a truth here. We are human. There's a simple truth here. Because mercy can only be granted to those who don't deserve it. The truth for me is I find it very easy to accept mercy, but a little bit harder to give it. When I experience mercy, I know I have nothing to lose and everything to gain. We accept God's mercy because we know we are sinners and it is our only hope. God's mercy is our only hope. But what happens when someone sins against me? What happens when someone gossips about me, slanders against me, even is cruel to me? And what happens when that person, in particular, calls himself follower of Christ? There is no mercy without grace. And there is no real mercy without God. And more specifically, there is no real mercy without Jesus Christ. Here the blessing is the same as the condition. Do you see it? In the verses before the Beatitudes that precede this, the condition comes up with the blessing. Poor in spirit are given the kingdom. Those who mourn are comforted. The meek inherit the earth. Those who hunger are filled. In other words, the blessing comes out of the need. Mercy in this text stands as both the blessing and the need. Here's our problem. I am reluctant to show any of you mercy because I know as soon as I do, when I start to call your debt and I forgive your debt, what happens is that my debts will come into light. I don't want to do that. So what I do is sometimes I negotiate in my head and I say kind of, Half-heartedly, don't worry about it. Don't sweat it. It's okay. I'm bigger than that. But inside, I have this internal accountant that is compounding interest against you. Sometimes what I do is I say, you can extend the payments. Don't pay me now. You can pay me later. But can I come to you and say, you know what? The debt is forgiven. Can I wipe it clean? Everything in my fallen spirit says no. There's a voice crying within me, somebody has to pay. The truth is we know the language of blame all too well. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, blame has been going in our culture all over the place. Seeped in. Several years ago, an anthropologist Professor Gerard at the University of Stanford did a survey, did a study on culture and individuals and what happens when societies fall. And he found that when society falls, it's as the result of all the things that we would call individual sin, the things in us, the greed, the aggression, the violence, basically the focus on self. These same things go into culture, and it makes sense. And when that happens, culture falls. But what he also found deeply embedded in every single culture around the world, every culture was the need to blame. We have a word for that, scapegoat. 
When he started looking at the Old Testament, he found the principle of the scapegoat acted out in the law of Leviticus 16, where the priest literally took a scapegoat, confessed sins over that goat, and then drove that goat out into the desert. But what's more amazing, as we go into the New Testament, we discover that scapegoat that was symbolized in the Old Testament is personified. That scapegoat has a name. He was the ultimate scapegoat. He is God's son, who in Hebrews 9.28 says, was offered once to bear the sins of many. In Christ, the debt that we owe and the debts that others owe to us are reconciled. It's as if God is saying to us, you know what? It is your fault. Blame me. Because the mercy, this great mercy of God in Christ... Because of this, we are truly able to live out in mercy in this life, on this earth, to each other. I think taking all this together, we might say that mercy looks beyond the sin, the person's fault, and sees his or her need. Mercy is not necessarily concerned with how the person got into this condition. Don't misunderstand. Mercy does not dismiss or excuse sin. Mercy simply chooses to respond to the need first. It doesn't ignore personal responsibility. Indeed, but this beatitude calls for a tender heart. It speaks about the Bible, speaks in the Bible about God, the tender mercy from Christ. It's sympathetic, it's kind, it's thinking of others first. And I believe Christ's followers have tender hearts. We are merciful because we have been shown great mercy. And I think there are two focuses to mercy that we see in the Bible. The first is an eternal focus. And I want to look specifically at Luke 15, 11 through 32. The parable of the lost son. And as we go through this parable, we see in verses 11 through 15 that this prodigal, he's actually lost himself. This young man has spent his money wildly. He lives in a far-off land as one of the lonely people. Where do they all come from? The capital... Oh, no, Rigby, yeah? All right, I'll see if you're awake. Yes, <laughs> the Beatles. The capital he received from his father is wasted. He used, abused, misused all his money, and he's gone off, from a far land, gone off to a far land far from family, community, and his father. And I believe he's gone so far because... Anything that would remind him of his home, of his father, of his childhood would be an offense to him because this is more than just moving away. What he's actually doing is saying no to the father. This is rebellion. No to the father. In a sense, Adam's rebellion is here. It's Adam's rejection of God who loved him and those in whose love he was created and in whose love he was sustained. In Adam's rebellion, he is placed outside the garden. It is humankind's rebellion, it is your rebellion, it is my rebellion that has placed us far from the tree of life. The young man left home with pride, money, determined to live his own life, far from father, far from family, and community. And then we see in these verses, 11 through 15, he loses everything. He loses his wealth, he loses his community, family, 
and pride. And then we get down to verse 15, and we see something. He's lost his inheritance. In the Greek text, when it talks about this, it talks about how he actually attached himself to a citizen of that country, to a rich nobleman, a rich landowner. Does anyone else see the irony in this? Back home, he was the son of a rich landowner, a rich nobleman. He had been the inheritor. He had been the son. Now here he is attached to someone else's household. He who had been free becomes subject. He who had been son becomes somebody else's servant. He had been welcomed in a home is now in a strange land, a foreigner. He's under a master. He's under a man who doesn't care anything about him. He's a foreigner. He's starving. He's dying of hunger alone. And so he realizes the end of freedom. He realizes what it means to have no father. He realizes what it means now not to be a son. He discovers lostness as the destiny of liberty. And he comes to his senses, and we see this in verse 17 through 19. He knows his father. He knows that his father is kind and gracious and forgiving. The prodigal's proud heart is now broken. His spirit contrite. For a long time, we see he has not even mentioned his father's name, but now his father's name comes to his lips, and he says this, I will set out and go back to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. He is no longer worthy to be son. He's lost his identity, and he longs for home. He longs for his father's home. Then we see in verse 20, he is coming home. But let me make a point here quickly about verses 17 through 20. The repentance of the lost son is not just something negative. It's not just disgust with self. It's not just loneliness. It's not just homesickness. It's not just self-interest. It's not just turning from the world. It's not just turning from something. It's turning to something. This is the biblical definition of repentance, a turning back home. And whenever the New Testament talks about repentance, it talks about it in the context of joy in the background. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. When the sun has come to the end of his road, that is, up, that is where the road of God begins. The end from human point of view is the beginning from God's point of view. That is repentance. Disgust with yourself will not heal. Sorrow itself will not cure. Disgust and sorrow in the world of this world is a repentance that leads to death. Those are Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 7.10. It's a misery that leads to nothing, to nihilism, to an emptiness that no one can fill, to despair, ashamed in our rags. We see here a man who has no claim at all. He's a sinner who has no right at all. And by his father's love, he found home. He comes back and he found sonship. He found himself. It's amazing, gracious mystery of God's love in Christ that he came to seek and save that which was lost. They embraces us all. We see the father had compassion on his son. He will heal him. He will guide him. He will restore him. He does not wait for his son to come into the village. This is the best part of the story. He does not wait for his son even to speak. 
Rather, the father assumes a humbling posture before his child. He kisses his dirty son. He hugged his son in rags. The father speaks no words there at the edge of the village. He He substitutes kisses for words, his hands and arms for speech. And the son is overwhelmed. He can only offer the first part of that speech they practiced before, where he says, Father, I have sinned against you in heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But then we see in verse 20, and following, verse 22, the feast. The point of the parable. The younger son sees the father's grace demonstrated in the father's condescending action of becoming a servant, of putting off the father's glory, of running and hugging and kissing before the prodigal can even speak. The son, we see, thought that reconciliation would happen by humbling himself as a servant, by coming back to his father like that. But reconciliation comes because the father humbles himself. It is the father that becomes the servant. I think in the evangelical movement today, as evangelical Christians, we don't speak about mercy that much. And I wonder why. Maybe it's because we don't speak about sin that much and the need for forgiveness that much. But that's not the language of the Bible. In 1 Timothy 1.15, it says this. Paul says this. This is faithful saying, worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Psalm 51, David says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That language is echoed in the parable Jesus tells. But what this is all about, it's about your heart. It's about how your heart is before God. It's your response. It's your response to God. David, the worst of all sinners, is called a man after God's own heart because of his response always to God. In Ephesians 2.13, it says this, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. We were children of wrath. But that's not it. That's the part where we're grateful because that's the part where mercy starts because in John 1.12, it says this, Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. That's our identity now. That's our inheritance now. You are a beautiful child of God, but you and I must know we don't deserve it. There's an external focus, too, I believe, to mercy. And I want to look at Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, because I believe this reveals the tender heart of Jesus. Jesus is with a Pharisee named Simon. The Pharisees are the most devout, the most religious people of the time. 
And it was common practice for religious leaders to entertain a popular teacher, a rabbi, when that rabbi visited the community. So this is what Simon is doing here. And undoubtedly, he has invited a lot of his religious friends to come and sit and converse with Jesus. Maybe his motive is to kind of entrap Jesus the way we've seen other Pharisees do. Or maybe he is truly, genuinely interested in what Jesus has to say. Jesus' teachings were not told. But in verse 37, something happens. It was also common practice that when you had a gathering like this, you would leave the doors open so that people could come in and kind of listen to the conversation, and they would sit along the edge and just listen. But someone shows up quite unexpectedly and does something quite unexpected. We don't know much about this woman other than she had lived a sinful life in that town. We're not told exactly what the sinful life involved, but the implication here is that some sexual sin is involved. Either she's a prostitute or a notorious adulteress. And remember, this is a religious gathering. A woman like this would not be welcome at such an event. Her provocative dress, no doubt, was entirely inappropriate for the occasion. The sensuality of her behavior was downright scandalous. Letting her tears fall on Jesus' feet was extremely intimate. Then she wiped them with her loosened hair, and the only time a woman in the New Testament context would loosen her hair down was in the privacy of her bedchamber. Next, she emptied her perfume onto Jesus' feet, and as that fragrance filled the room, she massaged it into his skin. What is mercy? I think if we contrast the two attitudes, we see Simon's attitude is anything but beautiful. He is critical. He second-guesses Jesus when Jesus accepts the gratitude of the sinful woman. But Jesus tells a story beginning in verse 40. Simon, I have something to tell you. Simon says, please tell me. The story Jesus tells about two people who have debt, both to the same person, and both people are not able to pay it. One debt is much larger than the other, but the man forgave both debts. And Jesus asks, who do you think will appreciate it more? Who will be grateful? Simon says, that's easy. I know the person who's forgiven much will appreciate it much. That person will be more grateful. Verse 43 does say, you've judged correctly, but don't leave it here. Put it in context and follow the line of thought down from 44 through 47. Because, yes, it's true. You look again at that woman's attitude. She had humility. She was more grateful than Simon. That's obvious. But here's the key. What Jesus takes in the next several verses to point out is this. That woman knew she had a debt. Jesus says this. Both of you have an obligation, but only one of you accept it. And he illustrates it for Simon. He says to Simon, let me explain. What happened when I came to your house? Nothing. What has this woman done? When you didn't pour water on my feet, she wet my feet with her tears. When you didn't wipe my feet, she wiped my feet with her hair. When you didn't greet me with a kiss, the kiss of a, the kiss of a greeting, she kissed my feet. And when you didn't pour oil on my head, she poured perfume on my feet. Simon, she has done all the things you should have done as my host, and you did none of them. She had an obligation she recognized it. She accepted it. Simon, you had an obligation. You didn't accept it, and that's a tragedy. I think the tragedy 
As many times in our lives, we fail to see the contrast. All Simon could see was this woman's past. He could not detect the present contrast, what was happening right then and there. He could not see through the stench of his own self-righteousness the beauty of her humility. Jesus said, Simon, here's what you need to learn. Both of these people had debt. Neither could pay. Your problem, Simon, is that while this woman has a debt, you also had a debt. She knows it, and you don't. That's your problem. Simon, you're saying, you're okay. I'm a good person. After all, everything is right in my life. I have a good job. I have a good family. I'm moving fine. I know how to talk to God. I'm okay. Simon, what you don't realize is that you're in debt. And I believe there's a warning for us here in North America. I believe we're in danger as North Americans of having a false sense of security. We have this feeling that nothing can ever hurt us or bring us down or destroy us, and that's a dangerous place to be, and that's a dangerous place to be spiritually, to feel like you don't have any debt, because the result is that sin does not nearly look as awful as it used to be. You may say, George, that's a bad thing to preach because there are a lot of people in here that have a poor self-image. They've been beaten down. Listen, the only thing that will adequately deal with a poor self-image is recognizing that poor self-image is a result of sinful effects in my life, and the only person that can restore me fully is Jesus Christ. It's the cross daily. There has to be a tension between our fallen nature and the grace of Jesus. We can't in the church say either or. It has to be and both, and we have to live with that tension. If we don't give Jesus credit for everything, we will start taking credit for things. And when we start to do that, that's when we get in trouble. We have to be grateful. It's a heart thing. And if you and I are going to be grateful today, we have to recognize not only We do not deserve anything we have, but also we have failed in our obligation to God. And God, in his mercy, gave us a scapegoat. We have seen the contrast. We have failed in all those things. When we see that, when we come for the cross like that, we will be grateful. I want to end with the mercy part how it goes out to others. It's our response. It's an external focus. And verse 44 says this, Then Jesus turned toward the woman and to Simon and said, Do you see this woman? Of course Simon saw that woman. Every other person in that room had seen that woman. But all Simon had seen was her sin. Verse 39 gives us a glimpse into Simon's heart. It says this, When the Pharisee who invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus saw something very different when he looked at that woman. He saw whatever woundedness and desperation had led her to such a life. He saw the abuse exploitation she had suffered at the hands of men she saw he saw the guilt and shame that kept her trapped in a destructive life jesus looked beyond the woman's sin and saw her need 
So notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't pull away in embarrassment to save his reputation. He doesn't rebuke her for the life she's been leaving, even though he knows all about it. He does not correct her awkward expression of worship. That was what the Pharisees in the room expected the prophet to do, but that is not what Jesus did. Instead, he graciously received her extravagant and unorthodox display of affection. He rose to her defense when those around the table wanted to pass judgment on her. He dignified her behavior by describing it as worship in the highest order. Then he pronounced her sins forgiven. That's mercy. That's unexpected kindness. That's what it means to have a tender heart. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I think mercy looks beyond a person's faults to their needs. Don't misunderstand. Mercy does not ignore sin. It doesn't excuse it, sweep it under the rug, doesn't pretend that it doesn't matter. Three times in this text, the woman is called a sinner. Jesus actually refers to her as a sinner. But mercy chooses to respond to the need first instead of just reacting to the sin. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, I remember Christian teachers telling me long ago that I must hate a bad man's actions but not hate the bad man. Or they would say, hate the sin but not the sinner. For a long time I used to think this, silly, this was silly straw-splitting distinction. How could you hate what a man did and not hate the man? But years later it occurred to me that there was one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. However much I might dislike my own cowardice or conceit or greed, I went on loving myself. There's never been the slightest difficulty about it. In fact, the very reason why I hated the things was that I loved the man so much. Just because I loved myself, I was sorry to find that I was the sort of man who did those things. Consequently, Christianity does not want to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we said about them needs to be unsaid but it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves, being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping, if any way possible, that somehow, sometime, somewhere, he can be cured and made human again. When the sinful woman walked into the room, Jesus saw someone created in God's image. But all Simon saw was a sin. Jesus saw a woman created in God's image for eternal glory. All Simon saw was her inappropriate dress, her embarrassing behavior. Jesus saw past that to potential as a human being. Do you see the human? Do you see someone created in God's image? And in response, do you have love for that person? That's mercy. We find it easy, I think, in our context to condemn Simon and the Pharisees' reaction. But the sad truth is that in the church today, this kind of thing happens all the time. My friend Stacy... Long time ago, high school, years ago, different church, okay? Not Wyzetta. She had doubts. She had outward signs of rebellion. In high school, she smoked. She was involved in drugs. She shaved her head. One day, she did the unthinkable. She came to our church and announced that she was suicidal and she hated all Christians. There wasn't an immediate reaction. But no one knew what to do with her. Slowly, over time, you could see it. You could see it happening. She became ugly to the members of that church. They would visibly avoid her. No love, no mercy. 
and she walked out the doors of our church, a self-proclaimed atheist. One of the deepest regrets of my life is I did not pursue her. I was young. I didn't know what to do. I let her walk. Years later, I did get back in touch with her and heard her whole story. Got to see the human. Beginning in junior junior high, she fell to hands of abuse of her father. The one man that was supposed to protect her against everyone and anything betrayed her. In her young adolescent heart, her mind didn't know what to do, and thus the tragedy that followed. I'll share the end of Stacy's story because I had another friend who pursued her, who chased her out the doors, and it wasn't a week or two or a month, it was years of being in Stacy's life, of loving her every day, of living with her, of relentlessly showing her mercy. And it was because of that that Stacy did come back to the church. She is now in a new community where she has shared her story and she is accepted and she's loved and her story is a countless encouragement to many. My prayer for this church, for Wyzetta, is that we never turn anyone away. That we are mercifully kind. That we see the beautiful human created in God's image. That we see the need beyond the sin and we can say all are welcome here. Mercy begins with Christ. It flows to us and through us to others. Remember Jackie's story? Keep that with you this week, how she was attacked violently. It's an amazing story of grace and how in that grace, through God's mercy for her, she was able to give mercy to the man that attacked her and she forgave. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We have all sinned and fall short of God's glory. Chances are we are dressed a lot more appropriately than the woman that came into the room or even the prodigal with the rags. We know the right words to say to each other and even the right words to say to God. But as surely as that woman brought her sinful life into that room with her, we bring our sinful lives into this room as well. We are all prodigals with our woundedness, our desperation, our guilt, our shame, our baggage all hanging around our necks. But Jesus washed us clean. He revealed the human beneath our sin. And if that's what Christ has shown to us, how can we do any less than show that to others? We were children of wrath, but Christ died for us, and we must never take that for granted. If we fall before the cross broken daily, knowing that nothing we have, our homes, our successes, how we define ourselves, our measures of self-worth, knowing that nothing of that we deserve, it will change how we live focus on the cross and the power of his resurrection and we will live in gratitude every day for God's great mercy shown to us. We must show that mercy to others. We are beautiful children of God, not because of anything we did, but because of his great love and mercy. See God, see others how God sees you. A beautiful prodigal daughter, a beautiful prodigal son. Let us never forget the kisses and the hug of our loving father. And let us never, ever forget the words of Jesus to Simon. Do you see this woman? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great blessing. We thank you for your mercy. And we pray that we will be children of mercy. Bring us people on the fringe this next week. Help us to wisely and humbly show them your love. In your name, amen.